Well, let's turn to the book of Romans once again. Uh, It's been some time, but we're going to continue to work away on Romans on Sunday evenings as we're able. And uh, we come to chapter 2. I want to read verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8, so that we get the broad picture of what's here. Uh, as Paul continues his argument, and Romans is a very tightly woven argument, and we need to understand it as well as we possibly can because it's one of the key books of the Bible. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to this text, we ask in Jesus' name that the blessed Holy Spirit, who has given this book by divine inspiration and the word that we read tonight, will open our hearts that we may rejoice in salvation by Christ alone, and that if there is anyone here who attempts to find a refuge in someone or something else other than Christ, that that person would be smoked out by the truth, by the law, and that they would be driven to grace, grace and grace alone, to Christ alone, who is the Redeemer of sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 17, this is the word of God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth... You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For... Then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? Now let's take a few moments, if we may, to review the significance of the book of Romans and its study and its place in the history of the church and in the world. No other person other than Christ has so influenced Western civilization, I'm convinced, than has Paul the Apostle. 
that's certainly arguable at least, and no other book has so influenced history, or certainly no other book has so influenced the church, and certainly no other book has so influenced the Reformed churches as has the book of Romans. Written, you will recall, around 55 A.D., it is still the most profound piece of theology and discipleship and evangelism that has ever been written. It is given, of course, by divine inspiration. It is the Word of God, but it was given through Paul the Apostle, and Paul the Apostle was a theological genius without question. Without question, just reading the passage that we read tonight, did you see how intricate his argument is? We're only really going to be able to skim over the argument this evening. Romans focuses upon the great matter of justification by Christ's imputed righteousness. Now it deals with other things as well. But that's the core of the book. So that in the very first chapter, in verses 16 and 17, the apostle said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now remember, that was an example of Lytotes, its understatement. When he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it really means I am ecstatic about the gospel. I am completely overwhelmed by the gospel. And then in verse 17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. And the book then unpacks this whole great theme of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to the believer by which alone we are justified. I don't know if you know the name William Charles Robinson or not, but at old... uh, Uh, Columbia Seminary, when it was just beginning to turn liberal, unhappily, there was one professor there whose name was William Childs Robinson, brilliant theologian. He was a professor of church history, and uh, he held to the faith. He held very tenaciously to God's Word. And uh, on one occasion, William Childs Robinson said, I've been accused of writing the hobby of justification by faith. He said, I don't. But if I did, that would not be a bad hobby to ride. And I think he's right. Paul the Apostle certainly emphasized that. And in our day, in which in a variety of ways justification is being denied or minimized or reinterpreted in unbiblical ways, we need again to see the significance of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. Now, the book of Romans is in many ways the key to the Bible. If you understand this, you have the key to understanding the redemptive history of the scriptures. It grounds us comprehensively in essential doctrine and living. It stresses justification, union with Christ, and also sanctification. And it shows the relationship between theology and missions, theology and evangelism. So this indeed is a very, very profound book that we've been studying together. Romans has been at the forefront of the Reformation and revival of the church as far as I can see every time there has been Reformation, renewal, and revival in the church. Men gripped by Romans have been a flame of fire. They have been burning evangelists for Jesus Christ. And so we need that today. Oh, how we pray for that today. Having defined the gospel in chapter three, one, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and again in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, as relating to the person and work of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, justification by faith. Paul now has moved on in the remainder of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and now into chapter 3 as well. He's moved on to demonstrate the need that every human being has of the gospel. That there is no one born into this world that does not need the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. The Gentile world, focused upon in chapter 1, 
needs the gospel. The Jew focused upon in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, the Jew also needs the gospel. And in the passage before us, Paul continues to show the Jews' need of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the various ways in which their religious practices have become hiding places for them, uh, ways of escaping the gospel rather than truly believing in the gospel of Christ. When Adam sinned, he hid from God. Sinners suppress the truth, Romans 1.18. Sinners always hide from God. We do not want God. We know God, Paul teaches in Romans 1, but we do not like the God who is. And so we suppress what we know to be true until God opens our hearts and shows us our need of Jesus. And one chief way in which people hide from God is by religion. By religion. I heard the other day a very interesting clip with Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, and a number of Episcopalian ministers. Now, certainly there are Bible-believing Episcopalian ministers, such as J.I. Packer, the late John Stott, but these were more typical liberal Episcopalian ministers. They were discussing homosexuality, and they were arguing for it, these Episcopal ministers were. The only one standing for what the Bible taught was Al Mohler. He took his stand on this is what God says. They took their stand on, well, this is what I feel. And so there they were in their collars. Uh, There they were, religious leaders, leaders of a church. But you see, it's all a hiding place. It's all game playing rather than submitting ourselves to the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. So it's possible, possible to be religious and lost. Indeed, All the world is religious and lost because we are all religious to the core, having been created in God's image. Our fallenness shows in religion. Paul's point then is to attempt to show them that hiding from God's uh, God's gospel brings judgment. Uh, That to attempt to hide from God's judgment means, by means of religion, by means of moral living, is to attempt the impossible. So I want us to see about three things. First, I want us to look at some of those hiding places that Paul unpacks in the passage. What are some of those hiding places? Cloaks for hiding from God's judgment that these religious people, these Jews, uh, took in order to escape uh, the judgment of God. Well, first of all, being a part of the covenant people of God was for them a hiding place. In verse 17 of chapter 2, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve of what is excellent, and so forth. They said, well, we're a part of the people of God, are we not? We are the chosen people of God. Now, the Bible does speak in terms of our covenant relationship with God. It's an essential way of understanding the Bible. But I think that it's important we understand that the Bible speaks of a formal and a vital relationship to God's covenant. A simply formal relationship to the covenant might mean a person, for example, who's a member of a church like this but doesn't yet trust in Christ. Uh, Perhaps even a child growing up who has not yet trusted in Christ who has a formal relationship to the covenant but not a vital relationship to the covenant. Vital, you know, means living. And so it is possible to have a formal relationship to the covenant and yet not to have a living relationship with God in His covenant of grace. 
So I ask you the question, just as the Jew said, well, we're Jews, we rely on the law, we boast in God, in other words, we're part of the covenant people of God, do you have a mere formal relationship with God and His covenant people, or do you have a living relationship with God having trusted in Christ alone that makes you a living member of His church and of His body? So being a part of the covenant people of God can be a hiding place for some people. Knowledge can be a hiding place for some, and it was for these Jews as well. Again, verses 17 and 18, if you call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, know His will, approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. You see, knowledge. And if you are sure, actually the the Greek text here said, if you persuade yourselves that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and so forth. So they had a great deal of knowledge. They could tell you what was in the law. They could speak a great deal that was true. Knowledge of the Scriptures is a wonderful thing. I stress that. I hope that you hear that. Every Christian needs to deepen his knowledge of the Bible. He needs a knowledge of God that comes from the Holy Scriptures. You need that. I need that. Every believer needs that. But knowledge of the Scriptures is not the ground of your confidence. Do you see the difference? You are not relying upon your knowledge to save you. You must rely upon Christ to save you. A knowledge of God's will or even instructing others. Going ahead in in verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So they taught other people. Which leads us, I think, to a third hiding place. Being a part of the people of God merely formally, a knowledge that may be true knowledge as far as it goes, but yet not a heartfelt knowledge of God by faith in Christ. But also holding a teaching office can for some people be a hiding place. Holding a place in the church, being a minister, being an elder, being a deacon, holding an office in the church, I think would be a reasonable application of this because in verses 19 and 20, they taught God's will, they instructed other people, So having gifts for teaching and participation in certain offices provides no sure evidence of salvation and cannot be the ground of salvation. Judas was one of the twelve. Keeping your marker here, turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Let me remind you of what the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount In Matthew 7, beginning with verse 21. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so Jesus makes it very plain. A person might might have the ability to work miracles and yet be lost. It's no evidence, no sign that that person knows Christ because he has the ability to work miracles. The whole point here is solus Christus. Christ alone is the ground of our salvation, and of our redemption. 
In 2 Timothy 3.5, Timothy is told by Paul having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So it's possible for someone to have the appearance of being a godly person and yet to deny its power to be lost. It is a fatal flaw to rely on such things. All of these things are good things, but they are not the ground of salvation. It is, it is fatal for any to think, I'm safe because of my privileges. And I'm safe because I'm a part of the people of God externally. I'm safe because of a position, or I'm safe because of my gifts. Those things don't save. And so they're boasting, these Jews, their boasting did not stem from self-emptiness. Of course not. But their boasting stemmed from self-righteousness. They boasted in God. In verse 17, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. They boasted a great deal. We have the law. We have the scriptures. We have privileges. We have office. We have rabbis. We have, they boasted a great deal and they boasted in God. Boasting in God is a good thing. Romans 5.11, 1 Corinthians 1.31, 2 Corinthians 10.17. Paul speaks of boasting in God. But Paul will also make it plain in the book of Galatians that there's only one real way in which we can boast in God. And how is that? It's to boast in the cross, isn't it? God forbid that I should glory, that I should boast, save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. It is only by boasting in what Christ has done that we can rightly boast in God. Only by finding the place upon which our feet can stand in Christ that we can rightly boast. Because we're not boasting in self, we're not boasting in gifts, we're not boasting in privileges. We are boasting in Christ alone. And so they have not fulfilled, these Jews, they have not fulfilled their true calling. So in whom do you boast, I ask you? And why? And for what reason? And on what grounds? Where do you find the foundation under your feet? In whom do you put your trust? How are you helping your children to understand that we have many privileges here, and they really should be appreciated, but those privileges are not the ground for our salvation? They're wonderful but they are not the ground. What great reasons then the Jew had to boast in God, and yet they did not know God through Christ and could not rightfully boast. So that's the first thing that we see, these various hiding places that the Apostle Paul unpacks in this passage, being a part of the covenant people of God, knowledge, holding office. It's all very, very fatal if we do not know Christ. Second thing I want us to see in this passage of Scripture is that reliance on privileges leads to self-righteousness. Now, listen to my language. Reliance upon privileges lead to self-righteousness. I did not say appreciation for privilege. Appreciation for privilege actually will lead us to self-emptiness to glory in the God who has given us those privileges. Appreciation for privilege is one thing. Reliance upon privilege is another. 
So what follows, I think, in Paul helps us to diagnose our relationship with God. As these Jews relied on privileges, upon what do you uh, rely? So he asks a series of provocative questions, beginning there in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so he's saying in this passage, in these questions, he's, he's saying to them ultimately, reliance upon privilege leads to self-righteousness. You can't even see your sin because you're relying on privilege rather than Christ. The vile hypocrisy of a double standard has come to grip your life. It leads to self-flattery, but they were actually self-condemned. They said, look at those Gentiles over there, they're all thieves, and yet they stole. Uh, They said, uh, you should not commit adultery, and yet they were themselves involved in committing adultery. Uh, Robbing temples, probably the idea of actually thinking that it was all right to take things that were related to idolatry and to make use of them, to steal them. Very difficult to understand quite what Paul means there, but evidently he would, uh, the Jew would say, you're involved in idolatry, and yet they would make use of idolatrous things in their own lives. Their irreverence was cloaked in religious garb. They were very religious about their irreverence. And so what Paul is doing in this is beginning to do something that he does later in the epistle, which is to unfold and unpack for us the spirituality of the law of God. Especially there in verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, you think you're saved by law keeping, but the real issue is you don't understand the law. Because if you really understood the law, you would understand that you can't be saved by law keeping because it is a transcript of God's holiness, a transcript of His character. It is majestic and not to be trifled with. And He is pushing them to see and pushing us to see the inflexibility of the law of God and to see ourselves by nature lost, condemned by the law. Otherwise, justification preached by Paul would be totally meaningless. In other words, why did Christ go to a cross if you could be saved by law-keeping? It would be totally senseless, as he says somewhere in Galatians as well. The gospel is good news to those who see themselves to be sinners. And so at the end of this argument, all the way down in verse 20 of chapter 3, He says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in chapter 7 of this book, he begins in chapter 7, verse 7, by asking the question, what shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. And he says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. So he says in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law of God is good. It is perfect. 
It is an inflexible reflection of the majestic holiness of God Himself. Therefore, to think that you can keep that law and keep that standard as a fallen human being in order to be saved, well, you just don't understand what the law is all about. This is what Martin Luther had to face. This is the great story of Martin Luther, isn't it? That Martin Luther wanted to be saved, but he was damned. He wanted to be a Christian, but he knew he wasn't. He wanted to be godly, but he knew that he couldn't be. <clears throat> and so what did he do? Well, he became a monk, of course, and there he performed works of supererogation. He prayed and he fasted and he confessed every small little thing that he could find in his life to his confessor. About drove his confessor nuts. And he did everything he could to save himself, to bring himself into some savable state, to be obedient to the law. Uh, he would whip himself and wear hair shirts and cause his skin to bleed and think that somehow this is going to provide before God acceptance. All the world religions in one way or another do this, by the way. They all think that by works of supererogation, a person can be holy or a person can be saved. Luther then said, well, I'll become a teacher of the Bible, surely. <laughs> you know, uh, by teaching the Bible, I'll be saved. He has an office, right? So he became Dr. Luther. He was doctored and he began to teach. But here's the wonderful thing as he began to teach. He began to read the Psalms and eventually he began to read the book of Romans. And he came across Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, the just shall live by faith and it completely blew away all of the false refuge. It smoked him out of his hiding place. And he finally understood a man can't be saved by keeping the law, by doing good things, by holding positions. A man can only be saved by what Christ did when he shed his blood on the cross. By being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, <clears throat> through the work of Christ alone. So the law of God showed Luther his need. But initially, he thought the law was his hiding place. And that's what Paul is getting at here. The greater the privilege, the more heinous the sin. An example of sin which aggravates judgment, verses 23 and 24, as we have seen all of these questions about committing adultery and robbing temples and all of these things. He says, you Jews, God has blasphemed among the Gentiles because of what they see in you, because of you. So as John Murray puts it, these Jews were long in profession and short on integrity. <laughs> long in profession, short on integrity. And Paul is saying, all of this law-keeping in order to be saved is just leading you deeper into sin, deeper into rebellion, and your witness is a travesty. Thirdly, is there a hiding place? Is there a hiding place? Well, you know there is. He pursues them to the final hiding place, which is circumcision, in verse 25 and following. Let's look again. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law 
for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What is Paul saying here? Well, <clears throat> circumcision was for the Jew his badge of his relationship with God. It would be like in, in some uh, settings today, baptismal regenerationists, who would point to baptism and say, okay, you're safe because you're baptized. Well, baptism never saved a soul, never regenerated a heart, never. Uh, but they looked upon their circumcision as their establishment of their relationship with God. Uh, the formal privileges, including circumcision, are no ground for God's favor, Paul is saying. Indeed, Gentile believers who have a real heart for God, who know Him from the heart, he says, they're the real Jews. Now that must have been absolutely shocking to some of these people who thought, we are the chosen people, we Jews because of our privileges. No, 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 don't you see? The true Jew, says Paul, is the Jew who is one in his heart, whose heart is circumcised. That is to say, whose heart has been cleansed by what Christ has done and achieved. So a Jew might say, well, I object. Uh, you're saying that these things are worthless. And Paul would say, no, they're not worthless. They're very important in their right place. But in terms of reliance upon circumcision and other privileges, yeah, they're worthless. If you're going to rely upon them, then as a mere right, it is absolutely worthless. And so Paul strikes at what we might call ritualism, just going through the motions, going through the rituals and thinking that the rituals save. Or they go on to say, you're impugning God's faithfulness. We're saved despite our unfaithfulness. Sin magnifies grace. And the apostle says, yes, God is faithful. He will justify those who look to Christ, not their work, not their privileges, not the statutes of the law, and not their status. Otherwise, his faithfulness demands judgment. And so Paul is absolutely relentless in this passage, relentless in chapter 1. The Gentiles have nothing to stand on, relentless in chapter 2, relentless as he goes into chapter 3. The Jew has nothing to stand on, nothing that he can rely upon in his tradition, in his religion, in his privileges. He has nothing that he can hide in, no place in which he can find a refuge, no ground upon which to stand in order to be saved. So it's really very simple, but every one of us is confused at one point in life or another with this. I can testify to this. I grew up under a minister who preached the gospel. I didn't hear it. He preached Christ. He preached salvation through Christ alone. I didn't hear it. I was very moral. And yet, when I was about 13 years of age, as I have told you, I began to see, man, the more I try to be moral, the worse my heart seems to get. And the Lord was working in my heart at that age to show me what Paul is saying here and in Galatians and in Philippians chapter 3 and in other places. 
that the law can't save, being good won't do it, religion won't bring us anywhere, not in this great matter of acceptance with God. So this kind of hiding is no game, is it? You used to play hide-and-seek when you were a child? That's a game. This kind of hiding is no game. Because you're hiding from the only one who can save and redeem. The good news is, grace is so powerful. Grace is so grace. (laughs) That grace comes to the sinner despite himself. And I really do mean what I told one of my lost friends one day. He said, I will never become a Christian. And my response to him was, my friend, if God intends to save you, there's nothing you can do to stop him. That's grace. And that's what Toplady meant when he would have us sing. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. What will you say when you see him on his judgment throne? Altogether holy and righteous. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself. Not in my privileges, not in circumcision, not in baptism, not in my formal relationship to the church. Not in, let me hide myself in thee. In Christ and in Christ alone. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.